Hello and welcome to Can I Ask You a Personal Question with Will and Dan. This week, Will and Dan chat to Andy Bell, Chief Executive of DIY investment platform AJ Bell. Andy co-founded the company in 1995 with his partner Nicholas Littlefair in a Manchester broom cupboard. And it is today worth nearly £2 billion on the London Stock Exchange. If you're enjoying our podcast, please let us know by leaving a review and a five-star rating. Here's the podcast. Enjoy. Did you see I emailed you, by the way? Uh, yes. 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 <laughs> uh, it's funny because... Um, so today we're speaking to Andy Bell, who is one of the co-founders of AJ Bell, Correct. the DIY investment platform. Um, and about half an hour ago, he sent me he sent me a list of questions that he was asked at a recent charity event, and basically they're better questions than we would have asked. So <laughs> here we just go through the list. They, they even they even got um, not only do they have quick fire questions, but the quick fire questions are really good. <laughs> They'd obviously thought about it. Um, anyway, we've got wow. some repertoire, repertoire, I think. Um, let me just think what they were. Does that really call into question our credibility as interviewers? Yeah, so, yeah. um, as you, you may have seen, actually, I haven't actually written the quick fires yet. Um, I so, saw that you you just wrote, like, add four more or something. Five more. Five more. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so they've got leave or remain. We could ask that. Um, what drives you mad? What are your goals outside business for the next few years? And what is your guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure is quite good. I keep keep thinking to myself, what would be a really good question is to ask him what his favourite fruit is. <laughs> so I'm going to stick that on there. What's your you favourite fruit? People, yeah, just follow your gut, follow your instinct. I think you definitely <laughs> keep people on their toes, which, yeah. Well, it's going to be difficult to keep on his toes. Um, because of, because of this question sheet, I think. Because uh, we'll be following a script. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for your for your email um, with the with those uh, with the questions you're asked at the at the recent charity event. They were yeah, really if it had been organised, I would have sent them before. To be put honest, <laughs> put us out of the job. <laughs> yeah. um, so obviously, um, so we've read those, and um, you know, we've uh, as we, as we do every week, we've uh, done a bit of research, bit of research into your background. But um, since we're a podcast, we will ask you to to, to run through it if possible. Um, so you are from Liverpool originally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it, um, you don't have much of a too much of a Liverpoolian accent. Did, is that something that you've lost over time, or uh, not really? No, I was, I was actually born in Liverpool, and then. Mm up in a place called St Helens which sort of sits between Liverpool and Manchester so if I go to Manchester uh, I get called a I get called a scouser and if I go to uh, Liverpool I get called a woolly back so I'm welcome oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah no slap bang in the middle in uh, St Helens yeah yeah um, so I grew up, grew up in St Helens um, you did you enjoy school you yeah I, did. School? Uh, I had a you know, fairly uh, unremarkable school career, I think. Um, had a good set of mates who are still my mates now. Um, played a lot of sport. I'm, I'm probably progressed uh, academically the further into the subjects uh, I enjoyed. So really, you know, maths and economics were the two end of doing a, a two maths A-levels in economics and really enjoyed those. And, and that, yeah, as ever, uh, makes school a lot more fun in the mm. early years doing all the subjects that I really couldn't tolerate. Uh, was a was a 
you know, was a challenge, but I uh, know uh, a very you know, typical comprehensive school in the north, but had some very good teachers there. And actually, my maths and economic teacher were two who uh, I really connected with and, and set me off on a path that uh, probably wouldn't have gone on had it not been for them. Yeah. And uh, that path was university you went on to. Um, where, where did you go? I did maths at Nottingham. I started life as a trainee actuary, uh, working for a big insurance company in the in the northwest. Was that fun? Uh, when you when you hear actuary, you just kind of well, maybe it's just me. I think I've known a few actuaries, and they've they they've never really liked talking about their jobs. So, is it, <laughs> uh, yeah, it? Is it fun? for very good reason. For very good reason, I think it, it was one where it's I'd say academically challenging. Uh, is you know you're coming from university, it's a different you know, and I think actually. It is hard work, so it's not you. You not only need intellect, but you do need to be willing to uh, to really roll your sleeves up. Uh, so, uh, but to be honest, some of the work was just tiresome. Um, uh, I'm particularly working in an insurance company environment where there was, there was lots I didn't like about it. You know, a lot of the financial services lessons I've learned in life were learned in those formative years. Were you know how not to run a financial services business, how not to design a product, and I got to the point where. I was, I was sharing a house with, with some lads and one of them had, had been to the States the year before. Uh, you're playing football and coaching football. And he said, look, Andy, why don't you come along? I said, well, I can't, I've got a job. And he said, well, you know, pack your job in. And I thought, you know what, uh, I could do that. And I ended up packing my job in, doing yeah. three years in the States, doing sort of tennis and football coaching. But, you know, tennis was uh, overstating my ability at tennis, really. <laughs> How old were you? I would have been 20... 24, probably of that age. <clears throat> um, so did that, at three three great years, you know, in a way that was paradise. Uh, but got to the point at the end of it where you think actually the lack of progression, it was, you'd see people in, you know, in the camp it was where we were working in, in the main part of it, where you'd see people and they'd been doing it for 10 or 15 years and there was just a, a you know, almost a, a staleness to the way they approach life. And I thought, actually, I've done my bit now. It's a it's a little window into a great world, but actually one I hankered after, believe it or not, hankered after, you know, the, the mental challenge of, of being an actress. So I went back to the UK and uh, picked up with a smaller firm, a small consultancy. Uh, I, 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 I'd got through my first set of exams really quickly, but then got, got distracted. So I qualified when I got back. Um, and, and then you know, the rest is history, really. I guess something that strikes me about your, your background is that it's very, like, very ordinary. Um, com- you know, compared with a lot of the entrepreneurs that we've had on, a lot of them have um, you know, left school at 15 or 16. They've got that, that you know, and, and gone straight into it. Or they've come from very well-off backgrounds. And it's kind of, you know, either way, it, it kind of seems like, um, you know, they've got some kind of a, an odd background in a way, but yours just, I mean, it just sounds like mine and Dan's, so uh, it's very encouraging. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, you know, not only the background is boring and normal, but the present is boring and normal as well, to be honest. There's nothing nothing particularly unique about, about what we do. Go to work in the morning, come back, see the family, and do it all yeah. the following day. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it'd be great if you could talk us through the um, the, the, the founding of, um, of the company, I suppose, and um, how old were you when, when you and your friend um, founded AJ Bell? Uh, oh, we'd be about 29, I think, something like that. Um, mm. uh, you know, and I think it, it was really coming off the back of that small company. I went back after America, went back, finished my exams, got working for a small consultancy. 
I'd have probably been happy there, to be honest, but, you know, we looked to try and get a stake in that business, really, for the future. There's myself and a couple of others who felt as though we were taking that business on. Nicholas, who set, the, who set AJV up with me, I brought him over from Leeds with his family to, to come and work with us and to help almost digitise, because really this, this was, you know, 1995 uh, we're talking about. So, you know, lots of businesses were paper-based and I could see very early doors that we could digitise our business and take it on to a different level. Uh, as it was that the founder of that business, we've got a lot of respect for, he chose to sell out and therefore any notion of us getting a stake in that, I could see us ending up back at the big, the big insurance company type world, which I, I really didn't want to go to. So uh, I said to Nicholas, I said, look, uh, I know I've just dragged you and your family over from the other side of the Pennines, not, not three months ago. Uh, I don't want to drop this on you, but I, I'm leaving to set up on my own. Uh, do you want to come with me? Uh, and he sort of, he had, I can't remember how many kids he had then, but he, he's a lot more risk averse. And I, I'm quite conservative, but he is incredibly risk averse. And I thought, he's, I gave him the weekend to decide and he came back on the Monday and said, mm, yeah, go on, I'll, I'll give it a go. If you're going, I'll, uh, I came over to work for you and I'd now like to work with you. And, and that mm. was the basis on, on which we set it up. And to be honest, we wouldn't be sat here having this conversation now if it wasn't for Nicholas. It's definitely true that in um, professional services industries like with actuarial services, uh, the, the cash barrier to entry is a lot lower. But there's also that barrier to entry that compared to manufacturing, you're probably getting a much higher salary in your current role, which for, I imagine for a lot of people makes it quite hard to turn your back on that and to take that jump. Was that a worry or a concern at the time? Or were you the kind of person, you know, you'd already gone off to America and done it all once you were just ready to do it again? Yeah, yeah, I've always had a, a fairly modest lifestyle, so I can't, I can't quite remember the numbers. I'm, I'm probably guessing now, but I think in my job, then I was probably on about thirty thousand a year, something like that, maybe a little bit more than that. And when we set up, I dropped my salary to twenty, and I'd, I'd actually, I'd moved one of my mates into the house, so I had a mortgage. But the way I looked at it was that his rent was largely paying off the mortgage. Um, I had a little bit of savings, some of it, which went into the company. And I was single, that was probably the important thing. He was actually in fairness to Nicholas, you know, he had, a, he had family commitments. Yeah, I, you know, I had a mortgage, I had one or maybe even two mates, a part of it, living in the house with me, helping to pay the rent. You know, that, that it never felt like a financial risk. I, you know, I do take my hat off to people who, who mortgage the house and mm-hmm. into businesses, you know, when people say, oh, you know, you're very brave doing that. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, my reputation was on the line. Um, that that was about it as far as I'm concerned. Often entrepreneurs, business leaders um, find it difficult to uh, to spend enough time, I suppose, with, with their families. You've got four kids um, and, and the wife. Have, have you, has that been a challenge for you? Um, or have you been able to balance your, your life well, do you think? Uh, I, I think I've, I've had a good balance. I think there's always more time. You know, I've, I've got great relationship with, with Tracy and all the kids. I don't, I don't sit here thinking, you know what, I've missed out on the kids to grow the business. It, it was never like that, you know, and I was always very good. At, I think I said before, working hard and playing hard. So I really will put the hours in, but you know, when I was off, now my brain might still be working on it, but you know, I would have plenty of holidays. I've always had lots of holidays, uh, weekends away, uh, you know, and I'm still still probably guilty of having too many lads weekends away. So that, that, that's probably more challenge on not spending time with Tracy than, than work if I'm honest but have you enjoyed um presumably you've spent more time with your family this year um working from home um 2020 have you enjoyed it 
That sounds like a loaded question, that one. <laughs> There's only one correct answer to that, isn't yeah. it? I've loved every minute of it. <laughs> had such a large and um successful business on your hands was there a moment when you when you just kind of realized that i you know really made something big and very and great here i you know i don't think i've ever actually stopped and, and patted myself on the back and say uh, well done you 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 built a great successful business because i think the second you start doing that you'll you'll get run over by the people trying to overtake you and and you know you want to take you you take your market off you. So, you know, that's, that's not the way I think. You know, clearly, I, I'd say one of the most memorable moments was the, the flotation. Uh, mm. you know, I, probably the one time where I just got a, a bit emotional. I had all the family there uh, and a business that you set up in a 149 square, square foot office. And then you're, you're jangling the bell at the, the London Stock Exchange to open the, to open the market is, uh, you know, is quite, is quite a moment. And, you know, before any of your listeners write in and say you don't have a bell, <laughs> market, we did have a bell at the opening of London market. I was going to ask you about that. Is it is it really like um, you know on a Wolf of Wall Street how it's portrayed in the movies? What was it like? Uh, it, it, it was it was it was brilliant, and it was one. I think part of the reason why it was brilliant was that we had such low expectations uh, for it because in, in in the days before it, you, you go and you see what's going on and. Uh, Paternoster Square, which is where the stock exchange is. Uh, I think people have this vision of this open outcry, uh, people waving pieces of paper. You know, you're walking into an office block and in the foyer, you're not really even allowed into the office block. In the foyer, uh, there's like a cube, a big cube with the share price on. There's a bit of, uh, you know, LED lighting going around with share prices on. Uh, but basically, they shove you in the, um, they just shove you in the, in the, in the foyer and say, right, uh, we'll do a 20 second count or 10 second countdown. And then on, uh, on zero, we want you to press that button and your share price will come up. And I, I'd warned all the family, I said, look, you know, don't expect much. This isn't the ring of the, the, ring of the bell that you've, you've seen in New York. Now we'd actually got a bell made. They thought, well, we, we are gonna go out a bit cheesy, but we- <laughs> You could enjoy and it. We were all stood on the, uh, we were all stood on the, on the corridor on the, on the, um, the bit overlooking the square, the uh, the queue, yeah. and the, the the countdown came, and all of a sudden you think, you know, this last twenty three years is flashing in front of your eyes, and in about eight seconds, the external world and the market are going to give a view. Are they going to find out whether I'm a fraud or not? You know, do they? They're going to find out. I don't really know what I'm doing. I, you know, I'm just just managed to bumble, almost bumble my way into running this business, and it came. It went to zero. Uh, I did get quite emotional at that point. You look around and see the family. I think we listed at £1.60 and then it went to 164 then 168 then 170 And I'm just thinking, oh, maybe, maybe they've not found me out. And then it went to 163, 161. And I thought, oh no. And actually, you know, in the, in the end, it was, it was fine. I think we closed down, I think £2.20 on the day. So quite a big, yeah, quite a big uplift. Yeah. Uh, and the shares have gone on and I'm not particularly interested in the share price, my job to run the business, but just, you know, look at that moment and think that was just, just actually taking it to the stock market was actually a really uh, exciting point. And it was a, you know, a voyage of discovery for us. I've, you know, I've, and I've never been trained to be a CEO. I've, I've, I've picked it up as I've gone along, never been trained to be a CEO of a PLC. I've never been on the board of a PLC. 
Um, so at all the times you're doubting yourself, I'm good enough to do this, but you know, eventually you sort of think, you know what, you things are, things are going all right here, you know, can't be that bad. So if I wind it back to 2006, seven, uh, I'd gone through um, three failed sales of the business. And by that, we'd been approached on three separate occasions to buy the business and every one I got cold feet. Uh, and that was really what you know, we say, I, I go back to the Nicholas situation, at every one of those he wanted to sell. Uh, every one of those deep down, I, I didn't want to sell. I could see the growth in the, in the business. So uh, a good friend of mine, I said to him, look, Eamon, who's actually now on our board, he's an actor who I train with. Uh, I said to him, look, Eamon, I've got this dilemma here. I've got, Nicholas clearly wants to uh, go in a different direction. He wants to, he wants to take some cash off the table. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to carry on. He said, well, I'll introduce you to um, a couple of chaps I know at Invesco, uh, which was Neil Woodford and Mark Barnett, who, you know, at the time both were revered, you know, both revered fund managers. I went down to see them in 2007 and bear in mind on these aborted sales, I'd got to sale and purchase agreement times um, were, you know, I read it and I thought, oh, my heart sank. He was telling me how many days holiday could have a year, mm. and all the warranties and indemnities I had to sign. And it just, it just didn't feel right. Um, so I went down to see uh, Neil and Mark and, you know, I had two hours with them. Yeah, I walked in, I'd never done anything like this before, but he said to them, um, look, if you invest in our business, then you can't have a seat on the board and there's no shareholders agreement. You're just going to have to trust me. And what I'll do in return is I'll run the business as a, as a listed business. Although we won't be listed, I'll run it as a PLC. I'll put all the government structures around the business to make it a PLC. And in fairness to them, they, they shook hands with me and said, well, well the, you bought into the business at that stage, came back and bought some more uh, over the years. And in the, you know, in the main, that helped Nicholas take some, some cash off the table, resolve that issue. Um, and they, they left me to it. They were brilliant investors. I know both Mark and Neil have been in the press more recently, but I can only say mm -hmm. that two of them were absolute gentlemen in, in, you know, in the way they dealt with us as investors. And considering it was all on a handshake and some fairly chunky money they invested into the business, uh, both made their funds, not them personally, both their funds made an awful lot of money uh, out of our business. But actually what that did, it meant that really if I sold, you know, I sold the controlling part of the business back in 2007 and we had institutional shareholders from 2007 for another 11 years, but in a private environment, which meant I was every six months I'd go back, I'd do an investor presentation. And actually by the time we came to do it in the real world for the IPO, and then now I have to do it every six months, go on this, uh, on this roadshow for investors, it feels like the most natural thing in the world. So it wasn't that big step that it is for lots of people who IPO the business. Mm -hmm. And you talked, you talked about um, Neil Woodford a bit there. Um, I, know, I know you've kind of um, been one of the few people who've um, spoken up and, and defended him over the last couple of years. Um, do you, I mean, in general, do you, do you think he's been, um, do you think he's been treated too badly? And are you friends with him or is um, no, no, you always purely, have a professional relationship? Uh, a purely professional relationship. And, you know, yeah. I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to put myself in the middle of, of what's going on. I think he's, he, he's, you know, I think he's, uh, he's glad to be out the limelight at the moment. I, I think, you know, I'm sure there's bits he would say with hindsight, he might do differently. I, I just, you know, you know what it's like in, in the UK, you know, if something goes wrong, people are demonized, you know, what he was doing, he was investing in, in money for, um, with the best interests of his fund and shareholders at heart. 
you know, whether he went beyond the remit, all I know is that we were one of those private companies that he invested in that was at the centre of the, match well, he'd sold us by the time this all came out, but we were probably as good an example as you can ever have of a, a fund manager buying into a private company and letting them get on with it and then making a load of money for your shareholders. They don't all work out as well as that. And the truth is probably quite a lot of the investors into Neil's fund were more thinking he was a widows and orphans fund just investing in, in mainstream investments. And he was clearly, and he, he went into more uh, unquoted, a lot of farmer stuff, which, you know, I'm not here to defend him. Uh, I just thought, like, my only observation on this, he was he was a true gentleman with me. Uh, mm. I, I, and for that, you know, uh, that's uh, all, all I would say. Do you think he'll come back from it? It's whether he'd want to or not, to be honest. You know, I think mm. we, you can only imagine what it's like, uh, you know, having that, you know, you know public flogging that he's had if it was me I'd probably you know I'd go and I'd go and run my own money I think and do it quietly out of the out of the limelight um he's clearly got a, a lot of knowledge a lot of experience but you know I, you know, I just wish him luck in whatever he does really I don't know I know people have lost money about it off it I'm not trying to undermine that at all but it is one of those uh, yeah. where you, you do need to look to the to the human side of of these situations as well both on both sides of the fence there so I can see both both sides of it So we've just got our quick fire now, um, which, uh, yeah, the quick fire that, that well, I, I can't remember the, the document you sent over, there were some quite good questions in there. Um, so we've had, we've had to come up with a few more. Um, my first question is, um, actually, this isn't too quick fire. This, maybe this is outside of the quick fire round, in fact. But, um, <laughs> but something that we've uh, always been quite interested in um, is just asking our interviewees to give us um, a piece of unconventional advice for entrepreneurs. Um, so Peter Hargreaves was our first interview interviewee and he said, don't have meetings. Uh, and then uh, it's kind of gone on from there. So is there anything that any piece of advice that you give an entrepreneur that, that you wouldn't, you know, something unusual or unconventional? Or is it uh, you just go by the book? No, I don't. Well, I think there's always bits by the book, but I, you know, probably one thing that um, I, I, I was at paying tax is a good thing. It's a sign of success. You know, people spend too long and too much effort in trying to avoid paying tax. And whenever I've whenever I paid a big hefty tax bill, if I ever was going to pretend to pat myself on the back and say, well done, that's a sign of success. If it gets you through the, the, the jitters of signing that check, then, uh, it, you know, it, it's time well spent. So, yeah, I would say um, it's no bad thing if you're paying tax then. Great, that's a great message. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you prefer uh, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson? Uh, probably Boris. I would have thought. Not you're not too, not 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 too won over by him though, by the sounds of it. I, I think I, I, no, I do. I, I do actually quite like him, and he's got a tough job at the moment. Um, I, I, yeah, I probably look at the reaction to the COVID crisis, and I think there's a sense that. Some of the decisions haven't quite had the common touch and the sense of, of reality to them. You know, clearly, where you're battling against economy or, or health, then um, you can see there's a decision to be made and you can't really be critical. But there are some decisions you've made where I think actually you're serving neither. Um, mm. You know, keeping got you shutting golf courses, for example, you've got the elderly play golf, it's good for mental health, it's open air. Why not keep the golf courses open? Uh, I think the border control was a shambles. Um, you know, we kept them open too long, and then this, this you know, uh, travel corridors has been a has been a mess. 
and I think the um, the curfew is is a is a joke. If I'm honest, I think that you know all they're doing is like the old days in Liverpool where everyone chucked out at two o'clock, and you know everyone's fighting in the taxi rank for the same taxis. Uh, it, it just it serves neither the economy nor nor health. So uh, you know I'm being a bit critical there. Uh, you know I'd say actually you wouldn't want his job. Uh, so you know on on those grounds I'll uh, I'll keep my opinions to myself. <laughs> um, you, um, you so you play five-a-side football, correct? Yeah, yeah. What um, what position roughly do you play? Uh, I've always been centre midfield um, yeah. on eleven side. I played eleven side for a long time, and now gravitated to uh, five-a-side again with a few mates from school still who, who live in the area. A few of the lads I've, I've met along the way, so it's uh, you know I wouldn't get this, this this image in your mind of people darting around the football pitch. I think we're we're two years off walking football at the moment. I would describe it as. <laughs> yeah, we um, Dan and I used to play five-a-side football together when I when I lived in London. So uh, okay. interested in that. Um, do you have a favourite film? Favourite film? Is it? Oh, I could have prepared for that. I could have given you quite a cool, trendy one, but <laughs> the only one that springs to mind is Pretty in Pink, which is one that I quite enjoyed with Molly Ringwald. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever watched it. Can't say I have. haven't. I? It was probably of a time, I think, when I was a, a young, impressionable. Uh, <laughs> so I, 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 you can strike that from the edit if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no chance. Um, <laughs> what is your uh, favourite fruit or vegetable? Favourite fruit or vegetable? Uh, I'd be going. It would be a fruit, I think, and probably melon or banana. Probably banana because it just it gets me up in the morning if I'm going training or doing something. I'll have a banana, and that's and that's job done then. Uh, so it's easy and it's it's there and quite tasty. So banana, I'll go for a banana. Okay, uh, beer or wine? At wine. Okay, um, and um, just just something that struck me. I see you've you've um, you're dressed up smartly today, uh, which is good to see because um, working from home, I, um, we often get people dressed down. Do you ever wear a tie? Uh, funerals, weddings, and if I was ever go never go to court, I'd, I'd wear a tie there as well. But I've never been to court, so uh, no. So you no. don't like? So you generally don't like ties? No. Okay, great. really uh, good interviewee the big the big thing i'm keen to discuss with you is your favorite fruit or veg question um you were quite excited to ask that going into it uh, how do you think it landed i don't know he took it in his, this is very disappointingly he really took it into his stride didn't he just yeah to, he just took to, it quite seriously other interviewees I mean, it, it reflects well on him that, that he just took that in his stride. He took that question as seriously as any other question. What's your darkest moment in business? What's your favourite fruit or vegetable? He <laughs> took both those questions and answered them very, very well, I think. Mm. Um, banana, solid, professional. solid answer. Very, very dull. Um, but it's Accurately. Accurately. I mean, yeah, I mean, you do get the impression. Um, I, th I think he's, yeah, he comes across as a very honest guy, doesn't he? Mm. And that fruit and vegetable question really solidified that for me. So I'm glad I asked it. 
Because yeah, I mean, it would revealed you a lot about what his would personality. You if, if it was you, um, I, and I, I suppose you haven't actually you haven't actually taken your business public yet. You're not worth um, you know four hundred million pounds or whatever. So at this stage, you're you're still in the need to every single art question you answer. It kind of has to be part of your story, doesn't it? So you'd probably say, <laughs> "Well, well, I'd probably say that my favorite fruit or vegetable is a passion fruit because I have so much passion for my business." That's what you'd say. I'd say a banana as well. No nonsense. <laughs> but I'd make it. I'd, well, you see, what um, what Andy did there was a little bit more subtle because he did make it part of his his story. He was saying like, "Look, I'm I'm a no nonsense guy. I get shit done. I'm nothing special. My favourite fruit it's a banana because I'm practical. I move fast and I'm high energy." But he didn't say that in those words. But that's what we picked up, and that's what he got across to us. He's a little bit more subtle than than many guests. I'm pretty sure a pedant once told me that banana is not a fruit; it's a herb. Oh, well, I think whoever that was is probably not worth having another conversation with. Me.